Rex from New York City. We are bringing you... Ladies and gentlemen, we are bringing you direct from New York City a Robert, a Robert Moses admiration dinner. And now, who are you applauding, Robert Moses or what? Oh man! I'll tell you. You know, it's sad. Let's let's give the outside world now. Have you ever had a feeling that you'd like to tell the world what to do with itself? <laughs> How would you all like at this one moment now? Because there's a lot of guys just tuning into the radio and don't know what they're listening to. They think they're getting Billy Graham. <laughs> In fact, a, a, a little chick wrote me a letter and she said, Shepard, the other night, I'm sitting in the back seat of the car. You'd be surprised at how many kids are underground listeners to the show. And right now, they're up in their pad, pretending they're asleep. And they got their ear plugged in, see, to this thing. And downstairs, their old man is sitting there watching Priscilla Lane. And Jeffrey Lynn. And Mr. Clean. He's watching Preparation H commercials. And every so often, he, he shouts up the stairs, Hey, will you quit wasting your time with that nut? And he looks back, and there are those two people singing, Double your pleasure. <laughs> well, now, right now, they're out there. And undoubtedly, all of you have had that secret feeling that we all have in the 20th century that you'd like to tell the world just exactly what you think of it. But you can't do it because you're chicken. Seriously, wouldn't you just once like to tell your boss what you really think of the big fall sales campaign? I mean, what you really secretly think about it. Would you like to tell him what to do with it? You'd just say, all right, leader, you know what? You can do it, a sales campaign. <laughs> and all of a sudden he realizes what you have said is the truth. <laughs> Has it occurred to you that your boss thinks the same thing of it? <laughs> There's a boss right now sitting back there under the elk. Serious? <laughs> no, you're, you're under the boar. <laughs> Either that or you're with the boar, I guess. <laughs> or you are the boar. <laughs> but seriously, though, by the way, how many of you have ever seen a real boar? Look at him. There he is. See him there looking out at the wall there? That boar, by the way, used to hang around this place. <laughs> now he works here. <laughs> but seriously, though, have you had that secret, terrible urge, that's part of the 20th century problem, you know, is we all feel like we have no voice. IBM is over here on one hand, over here on the other hand is Macy's, that great friendly store. Incidentally, did you go to the opening of Alexander's? 
for those of you who are interested in religious experiences. <laughs> now, there's no question about it that in our world, the equivalent of the temple, the real religion, are these great, these great dispensaries of the good life. And after all, what has a religion ever been but that? Secretly, think about it for a minute. What do you think guys were going into these gigantic Gothic temples in medieval Europe? They were looking for a way out. They were kind of looking somehow, maybe perhaps something will grab them and take them out of that rotten rut they're in. Well, I went to the opening of Alexander's. Why? What a silly question. Why? You know, it's true that most people... Now, she illustrated a thing that's very important. Most people think they're too good to observe the phenomenon of their time. And, you know, it was like my mother. Seriously, I used to ask my mother... My father, for example. He lived in the 20s in Chicago. You know, you see all these movies about the 20s, about Al Capone. You see the movies about... Dillinger, and about guys like Big Spiderbeck. You know, all the great figures of the 20s, F. Scott Fitzgerald. And I used to ask my dad, you know, as I got a little older and I'm studying this stuff in school, I'd ask my dad. I'd say, he did. Do you remember F. Scott Fitzgerald and the Jazz Age? My old man would look at me and he said, Fitzgerald? You mean the guy that had the pool room down here? <laughs> He never even recognized his time. When, when Big Spiderbeck would be playing in a little joint in Chicago, he was next door, dancing and listening to an outfit called Freddie Fisher and his Snickle Fritz band. <laughs> Seriously, and he put all this down. Well, I went to the opening of Alexander's. I went there early in the morning, and do you know what happens at the opening of a true temple? There is a long line of penitents. <laughs> Yes, all these little ladies, all standing, all lined up down 50... Now, you saw them, lined up down 59th Street, carrying their little shopping bags. It's kind of like a prayer wheel of our time. <laughs> yeah, you know, they got their little shopping bags, they're all waiting, and they're, they're all lined up at dawn. And a cop was standing there, and I went up to this cop, and I says, what happened? You know, how's it going? He says, you should have seen the fights. <laughs> He says, there were 18 ladies all arrived simultaneously and all of them wanted to be the first one through the door. Do you know right now out somewhere in the vast wilderness of the Bronx, there is a lady who got up at 4 o'clock in the morning and was the first one into Alexander's. And that is her claim to fame forever. She clings to this. It was a temple, a kind of a place where life and, and love and all of it came together. Well, I went into Alexander's. Did you go into it? It was wild. I went into Alexander's, and these ladies, you could see their feet sticking out of counters. You could hear the goatish cries, the religious calls of those who were seeing before their eyes salvation. And the word of salvation in our time is discount. <laughs> discount, you know. <laughs> It is. It really is. You know, that means you're in with God. <laughs> you don't pay less price. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. Can you imagine some poor guy getting excommunicated from Corvettes? <laughs> from now on, he's got to pay that list price, you know? You know the one that's crossed out? It's a forty-nine fifty. He's got to pay it, you know? <laughs> well, you know, this, 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 kind of, this kind of world, it has produced a, a generation of people, us, all of us together, it doesn't matter whether you're five, whether you're 70, it's produced a whole mob of people. Incidentally, wouldn't you like to see the class picture of our time? Seriously, can you imagine all the people who lived right now, who are alive in 1965, all over the world? One of those, have you ever gone into a company, those dusty offices, where they got roll-top desks? They have a big, you know, a big clock, you know, the kind of clock like back there. See it there? And it just swings back and forth, and it's got a pendulum. And underneath it in gold, it says something like, First National Bank, Rock Island Line. <laughs> and there are guys sitting there with green eye shields. That kind of musty, strange office world. You see little waste baskets and stuff. Well, if you can imagine an office like that, these people all living together. I went into an office like that when I was about 10. My grandpa Charlie worked in there. And they had a picture. Have you ever seen those in those offices? A big picture. Great big. It's usually like that. Big wide picture with all these people standing. With vests. Derby hats, you know, they're all leaning. And there's a bunch of little kids. And underneath it, it says Company Picnic. Acme Bolton Nut Corporation, Canton, Ohio, 1905. And they're all looking out of that picture. And below them, these guys are all working. Working the little things. Well, wouldn't it be fantastic if there was a, if there was a class picnic picture of all the people in the world in 1965? All of them. All the guys in India. All the guys in Cuba. Timbuktu. All lined up standing there. <laughs> Great big long film. And it's underneath it, it says 1965. Mankind. <laughs> Class of 20th century. Well, wouldn't that be a picture to look at in the year, say, 5792? It really would. And somewhere in that fantastic conglomeration of people, there you are. <laughs> Have you ever had the feeling when they took the picture of mankind, you'd be turned around? Yeah. <laughs> and underneath it, it's got all the names that says unidentified. <laughs> Have you ever had that terrible feeling when you're getting a group picture taken? <laughs> that they got it just at the moment you went down, you know? Yeah. Uh, you gonna... Well, our class... The class that we all belong to has produced an interesting problem. We feel that no one can hear us, that we have no communication. So how would you like to, at this one moment, send out a fantastic invective at the world? How would you like to hiss 27 states? How would you like to, at this moment, hiss every third car on the Jersey Turnpike? <laughs> all right, gang. At this moment, all of you guys out there who got your radio sets tuned in, 
join us in this fantastic hiss. We're hissing all of it. You know what I mean by it. Well, you know all the they that do all the crummy stuff to us. You know the they that put all that junk on television. You know the they. The they that creates the Beatles and don't appreciate you. You know what I mean, the beautiful inner you, honey. You know what I'm talking about. Nobody really appreciates you, do they, gang? All right, now, when I give you the cue, all of you guys out there who are driving your cars and you want to hurl an invective at those coming at you, blink your lights three times. <laughs> As we hiss, <laughs> turn up your radio and let them all know what you think. You imagine a guy pulls up to the Lincoln Tunnel? <laughs> And this big cop's got the hand out, and all of a sudden this radio goes, Bleh! He drives right on. I didn't do it, there was a radio here. <laughs> oh, man. Incidentally, speaking of, of would you want to do that? Yeah. All right, now, what would you prefer? Now, this is, this is a, an ideological discussion here. Let's put it open to the house. Would you prefer a simple, rotund boo? No? All right. Okay, see? All right, that's been booed down. <laughs> Would you prefer an angry, venomous hiss? Well, what would you like? I hesitate to think. Whatever it is, you'll have to do it after the show. On your own time, son. <laughs> All right, I'll tell you what we'll do. There is a word, I think, that is more disturbing than any other word, and for that reason it has disappeared. And that word is whoopee. <laughs> Can you imagine a guy tuning across his dial, casually out in Beckley, West Virginia, and all of a sudden he hears this gigantic whoopee come roaring out of his Motorola, and he ain't invited. All right, how's that for an invective? And at the same time, when you holler whoopee crowd, all of you out there in your cars, blink your lights three times at the oncoming clutches. And they will wonder what you're up to, but you will know. All right, already out there? Now, work it up inside of you. Be a method whoopier. Don't just holler whoopee. That ain't what whoopee's about, gang. Think of something that you would like to do more than anything else. Only you can't do it because of situations and you'll ever get caught. Are you already out there, gang? Oh, yeah. Hey, by the way, uh, speaking of, of, of the secret desires that we all have, wouldn't you just once like to get invited to an orgy? I'm talking about a real one, you know? I'm not talking about a bridge mix orgy. My mother used to go to those, you know. They sit there and play bingo or bunko or something with a little bell, you know, and get all bridge mixed up. Stuffing in their trap. All right, now, we have exactly 15 seconds before whoopee zero hour. 
Are you ready out there in the Jersey Turnpike? <laughs> you ready out there on the Pennsylvania Turnpike? Ah, yes, heading to that great Howard Johnson in the sky. <laughs> you know, one of the great signs on, on the turnpikes is this big sign that says, Pay Toll Ahead. <laughs> Boy, I, I could see that. What a great epitaph that would make on a headstone of a 20th century traveler. Pay Toll Ahead. And there he arrives at the gate of heaven with no change. <laughs> Can you imagine up there it says exact change lane? <laughs> All right, gang, now let's go. We got five seconds. Work up that whoopee. Three, two, one, go! You know, let me tell you, let me tell you a little story about turnpikes. The funny thing, we measure bravery in our time by very small, almost imperceptible movements within this great melange of 20th century life. You know, it's very hard to find many dragons. Wouldn't you like to really see a dragon that you could kill? Seriously, how would you like to go down in your basement tonight and there's a dragon? What if you got a call right tonight, the phone rang, and it's Howie. Howie. And Howie says, Chuck, there's this chick, this beautiful, beautiful, rose-petal, beautiful chick outside of Trenton, and she's being kept in Durance Vile by this, you won't believe it, dragon. How about you and me going to take care of him? Would you do it? Would you seriously do it if outside of Fort Lee there was a little house and standing on the porch is this dragon? <laughs> and every once in a while he goes, Bleh! and this long shot of flame goes out, see? And he is keeping Esther Jane in there. I often wondered what dragons did with those chicks. <laughs> Wouldn't it be terrible to kill the dragon and find out she dug him? <laughs> this is what she was after. Well, <laughs> he married one, he knows. <laughs> well, seriously, though, this, this is, is one of the great problems. You know, we measure our bravery. I think one of the reasons why we dig, in a, in a secret way, we dig westerns. Are you aware that practically every third show now on television is a Western? And it's not because the klutzes are putting them on. It's because the klutzes are watching them. <laughs> Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Out there, there are 18 million rawhide fans. Just watch it. Gunsmoke. Name it. They're watching. Why? Because in these myths, bravery is clearly delineated. There is a moment where old John Wayne, standing there on a the street, you know, with that dust blowing around his feet, that blazing sun ahead of him, and the last chance saloon is over here, and down the street is the church, 
And there's the school marm watching him. And coming, walking towards him is snot slaggery. <laughs> With the big black hat. He's got the tight black pants. He's got blue jowls. You know, has, has it ever occurred to you that bad guys got mothers? <laughs> Those guys that, that, that John Wayne and that Gary Cooper gunned down at one time were little babies. With little blue jowls. Little gimlet eyes, you know. They were growing up to be bad men. And John Wayne was this little blue-eyed infant with a little tiny, soft, square jaw. <laughs> he was growing up to be a good guy. Well, that's why we love these westerns. Good guys are very... You know, it's a fact in Hollywood. If Whenever you confuse the issue, whenever you show a bad guy who, when, he's, when he gets shot, goes, Oh, that hurt! Oh! Oh! He shot me! It hurt! It dies at the box office. They gotta die clean. Boom! They fall down. And nobody ever... Have you ever seen a, in a Western, the camera dollies up, and here's Black Bart. He's been shot by Gary Cooper with those twin 45s. Have you ever seen a man shot by a 45? You wouldn't believe it. Well, can you imagine the camera dollies over there? And there he is. He's spread out all over the street. All these people are standing back looking. And Gary walks away. All of a sudden, he's rotten. Everybody's worried, you know. Gee, should he have done that? Well, there's one other kind of show that people dig. And that's World War II movies. Now, why is there a thousand movies called uh, Command Decision? Twelve o'clock high. Because the good guys are clearly delineated. Well, let me tell you about our world. Have you ever watched a guy proving he's a man by catching a cab on 6th Avenue? With this chick behind him, you stay up there, baby, you know, and he runs like this. You know? He's standing out there with those yellow cabs coming at him, and he is, he is a 6th Avenue Toreador, you know? Hey, cab, cab! Gosh. Now, you wait there, baby. Wait just a minute. Now, here he comes. Watch him. Hey, cab, cab, cab! Off duty. And she is standing back of him, boiling. Then, all of a sudden, she says, Just a minute. Cab! And 17 of them come. Once again, he's been reduced to a nebbish. Well, this is the kind of masculinity symbol we have today, and those little bravery, worry, fears, we're not afraid of dragons. We're afraid of arriving at toll houses without money. Can you imagine arriving at the Lincoln Tunnel without a cent? No money! What do you do? Well, I, have, I, I did a thing a couple of years ago. Do you want to hear a story about a toll pike incident that was really true? Yeah. Well, let me tell you what happened. It was a hot night, just about, you know, the middle of August, early September. That, you know that kind of time when people have already realized that summer didn't work again? <laughs> you know? <laughs> they didn't get to the beach. 
and instead of getting skinnier and browner, they got fatter and whiter. <laughs> you know, that whole bit, you know. Nothing is sadder than a guy with a pair of Madras shorts on, and you know, he looks like checkered salami. And somehow he thinks he looks real good, you know, and you see him walking down the street. Have you ever watched? There's a certain kind of guy that wears madras shorts, and he doesn't quite know. He wears socks to come up here. You know, the black kind of socks and brown shoes. <laughs> and he's got one of these Fruit of the Loom shirts, you know, sort of hang. He walks along with a camera in the front. <laughs> and he's got one of these hats with beer cans on the top, you know. That's the world's fair, that's the world's fair pilgrim. <laughs> that's true. Spe speaking of klutzes, what radio station is this gang? Come on, let's hear it. AM and FM in friendly New York, which is a fantastic place to visit, friends. Well, now, this was about three years ago. And right now, perhaps you're aware that out in the darkness at the other end of this microphone there is a gigantic traffic jam yes on any one of these given holidays it's like new york is the center the body of an enormous tin tarantula yes there's a there's a there's a line of traffic that goes out the long island expressway that hangs into the ocean at montauk <laughs> It just hangs in, you know, and it spreads out in all directions. And it goes down towards the south and heads through Philadelphia and peters out somewhere near Delaware. Gigantic traffic jam. Well, about two or three years ago, I'm on the air, see, and I'm talking to that traffic jam. And I'm saying, is there one man among you, just one, who is not a mouse, right at this minute? There must be at least 7,000 cars lined up to the entranceway of the Lincoln Tunnel. Just one man. After all, what are they charging you for that? You paid for that tunnel years ago. Who's getting all that dough? You ever wondered about that? Wouldn't it be fantastic if three little guys with black hats own the George Washington Bridge? And every day they bring them 19 trucks full of half dollars, you know? <laughs> Seriously, we never asked these questions. You know, years ago when they built these things, are you aware that they told them, they told the people at the time that in a couple of years the fares would pay it off and then it would be free? Well, they built those in the second ice age. <laughs> and everywhere you go, there's a guy with a handout. You know that... that that about four months ago, two guys set up an aluminum toll booth. I'm serious, they did this out in Ohio, and these guys knocked down like $700 in an hour and a half, packed it away, and gone. They did, they just stopped everybody, and they put their hand on the guys, threw it in, you know? You, you don't ask any. How, how many of you know that that booth out there on the Merritt Parkway is for real? <laughs> I mean, seriously, just one guy wouldn't... I'd love to hear one guy drive up to that, to that booth way out there, you know, near Berrien, or way, the one way up by New Haven, see, and stop and say, show me your credentials. 
I don't know who you are. You want a time. Who are you? Can you imagine the panic? Hey, Maury, come over here, Maury. Hey, Maury. <laughs> uh, the one I especially like is just that basket. Would you like to own one of them baskets, you know? It says, drop quarter here. And the little light says, thank you. <laughs> Have you ever had that feeling the light is not going to say thank you? You throw it in and it stays red. <laughs> well, I have a suspicion. Often it's occurred to me some of those things look pretty cheap. You got a little plastic basket hanging out there. You know, it's got a little pencil thing that says 25 cents on it. I passed one in Jersey the other day, just a 25 cents a little thing. I thought they were having a sale, you know. <laughs> you know, it's just 25 cents in the basket. Well, I suspect that there's a cave under there. Under that basket. And there's a guy down there. And he's got bags. And it's coming down and he wraps it up and down the chute it goes. Well, about two or three years ago, I, I, I proposed this. I said, have you ever... Have you ever asked yourself who these people are at the head of Lincoln Tunnel? Who are these guys? They could all be working for the Village Voice. <laughs> you don't know who they are. They may be hippies. They got a gag going there. What would happen if you drove up to one of those toll booths and says, I won't pay? Nah. I just don't want to pay. And of course, the cars are lined up eight million behind. This is my tunnel. I am a taxpayer. I paid for this tunnel. And I am not going to give you a half a rock. What would they do? Well, I said on the air, this is ridiculous. Nobody's going to try it. I said, just one guy out there. Will you do it for all of us? After all, every tribe has needed a sacrifice. <laughs> Well, what do you think this sacrifice business is? There's got to be one guy who's got to hurl himself at the great god Moolah, you know? And so, <laughs> so, sure enough, in the middle of the show, a call came in. I'm going to tell you an, a true story. Now, listen to this. This is a real sociological bit of our time. A call came in, and it came in through the switchboard, and the operator said, I am getting a mobile call. You know what is it, a mobile call? Well, that's a call that has to come through a special switchboard that is being made from an automobile or a boat. She says, I have a mobile call here. Is there anyone there by the name of Shepard? And the girl at the switchboard says, yes, he's on the air now. And in the background, she could hear, beep, beep, boop, bop, get him on the phone, quick. Get him, get him. Help, quick. Help, I'm in the number three lane now. Get him. Well, I, I got the call. I says, hello, fella, who is this? He says, I'm, I'm two cars away now from the booth. I'm going to do it. <laughs> well, I am broadcasting this all over the country, you know. And there must have been 4,000 guys in the line at Lincoln Times. He's going to do it. He's going to do it. <laughs> Holy smokes. I'm telling you the truth. I'm going to do it. And I hear, you know, the sound of a mobile call. I hear, beep, beep, boop, boop, boop. And then I hear a moment. There was just a moment. And then I hear, I hear this guy say, uh, drive up, George. 
He's in a chauffeur-driven car. I'm telling the truth. He says, pull up, George, hurry up. I'm going to do it. I'm going to tell him I'm going to do it. And there was a brief pause, and I hear this voice. Just a second. A voice paused. And the chauffeur says, I hear it faintly. And I hear the car drive up, and the guy says, I'm not going to pay it. <laughs> and then I hear, what? He says, he's now looking out of the window at me. He's coming towards me, Shep. What do I do now? <laughs> and I'm thinking, what has God wrought? He says, he says, he's going back in the hole now. He's not doing anything. Wait a minute. Just a minute. He's looking the other way. He's talking to another guy in the other booth. And then I hear behind, beep, 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 beep. And then I hear this voice, pull over to the side. Come on, pull over to the side, Mac. Come on. He says, he's telling me to pull over to the side now. I'm inside the gate. He says, I pulled inside. What do I do now, Shep? I says, cool it. I says, hang on, man, you're inside. He says, yeah. He says, I'm inside the gate. I says, what are they doing now? He says, nothing. They're taking another half dollars. He says, we're still sitting here. I says, what's he doing now? He says, nothing. They're still taking half dollars. I says, pull into line. He says, should I? I says, yeah, man. He says, okay. George. Please drive up. Go ahead into the tunnel. Then I hear this gigantic Cadillac. He says, we're in line now. They're not saying anything. We're in the tunnel. We're doing it. We're doing it. Ah, we're doing it. And then he faded out. You know how they do in the tunnel? And 18 million people are listening. And they're all saying, oh, go, man, go. They're going to get him in a tunnel. They're going to get him in a tunnel. And I'm holding this dead phone, you know. I, I hear nothing but a hiss, see. And it went on and on. And I said, he, he, he should be in a tunnel now, folks, ladies and gentlemen. And all of a sudden, I hear this fantastic signal come up. We made it! Woo! We did it for all of you out there. Go, man! And he had gotten through the Lincoln Tunnel. They had not laid a hand on him. And is, wouldn't it, isn't it, isn't it poetic justice that it was a chauffeur-driven Cadillac? <laughs> I never heard from that guy again. And wherever he is, out there in the darkness, this guy knew one moment of absolute perfect heroism. And I say he did it for all. And I say right now, we should give him, wherever he is, out there on the fantail of his yacht, <laughs> somewhere off Southampton, let's give him a big hand. Come on, Jay. <laughs> but you know, seriously, when you, when you think of, of that kind of heroism, of defying him at the turnpike, how many of you have had a secret desire when in front of you is this surly cauliflower head? And you're in a cab. 
And you can see this guy, is go, he's going in all the wrong lanes. He's milking the meter for everything it's got. And he's one of these cab drivers, you know, that every 30 seconds he hollers out of the window. Hey, when, you, when you're in a cab and your cab driver's having a giant fight with another cab driver, do you root for him? <laughs> is he your side? Or if you're in the cab and you see that the guy who you're with has just cut off a little old lady and banged the fender of a guy who's a Presbyterian minister who is just putting along, and then he hollers, Get away, you clutch! What do you say to him? Do you boo him? Well, have you ever had the secret feeling when you're sitting back of a cab driver, one of these real surly guys, that little moment goes through your mind, I ain't going to tip him. He's going to play hell getting a tip from me. And you see this big, thick neck. These two little toadstools for ears, you know, sticking out. And once in a while, he spits. You ever been in a cab, dri a cab that spits? I was with a cab driver one night who could spit in curves. Out the front window and in the back. How do you pay a guy, how do you tip a guy that's spitting your eye for 48 blocks? And he was doing it on purpose. You could see, he could, you know, just, ooh, go like that. And he'd watch in the rearview mirror. He was a knuckleball spitter. <laughs> Impossible to bat against. Well, how many of you had that, that, that little secret desire not to tip? Well, did, did I ever tell you the story of the time I didn't tip? on 57th Street and how the crowd on the sidewalk <laughs> you have no idea how suddenly a mob turns into a mob I'm with this guy you know and, and he's one of these racial nuts have you ever been with a cab driver who hurls epithets at every last guy on the street who is not his color and, and this guy he played like he was bowling he, he, and he takes me into his confidence. What do you say when a guy takes you into his confidence and he, he assumes that you're one of him? Like I said, hey, watch this one. Watch me get this one. Whoop, and the guy jumps. <laughs> what are you supposed to say? Go, man, go. Get one for me. You know, wow. Well, we do this for about 30, 40 blocks and we're up on the sidewalk. We chased one little old lady into a pool room. You know, we're going in and out, and he's doing all this stuff, spitting out the window, and we finally get to where I wanted to go. We took the great circle route. <laughs> he told me it was going to be quick if he went by way of Brooklyn. You know, and so we finally got there, and I reach, I look in my pocket, see, and it was one of those moments when you got a $20 bill. Well, have you ever tried to give a cab driver a $20 bill? Let me tell you, this, you could, you, could, you could say the worst thing you could think of about his mother. You could say, you could heap obscenities on his wife and his ancestry. But that $20 bill is a real slap in the face. Well, I got a $20 bill. I'm a real New Yorker now, see. I know $20 bills are not legal tender. <laughs> not in New York, they're not. <laughs> Unless you're going to see a bad musical starring Mary Martin. At which point, that's just a starter. And so I've got this $20 bill, and I've got a dollar. 
Now, the tag on the, on the meter said 95 cents. Now, there is a great theological schism of our time. On the one hand is hell, on the other hand, God only knows, you know. So I thought to myself, this is a surly klutz, he's yelled at me all the way. Now's my time, now's my time to stand up and be a man. So I give him the buck and I says, there, keep the change. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, I, got, I went up on a curb like that, you know. And you could see this red beat. His face all of a sudden became like a red beat. Two little tiny grapes looking out. And he looks at him and he says, Yeah, I figured you for one of them damn cheapskates all the way down the line, Jack. There's one like you on every block. And here are three ladies getting in. And, you know, they're trying to ignore the situation. And I said, look out, he's a bad apple. And the three little ladies go, Hoo. And they get into camp, and the guy is yelling out at me. He says, you're a cheapskate. And this lady sticks her neck out of the cab in the back. She says, you're the kind who makes it difficult for all of us. <laughs> That happened in front of Carnegie Hall. Well, I'll tell you, it was from that moment on, I realized that discretion is the better part of battle. From here on in, I tip, I tip strangers I see on the street. I, I Indian wrestle people as to who's going to tip. Incidentally, one of the great fears in New York is the the supervisor of the apartment fear. How many people are afraid of the guy who's the caretaker of the apartment here? How many people right now are saving up for his Christmas present? <laughs> I know one guy who starts a little Christmas club down at the Chase Manhattan for his elevator man. He's so afraid of him. And this guy stands there, you know, all, uh, these are the things of which bravery in our time is composed. And I would like, I have about four or five or ten minutes, and I want to tell the story of the one time I saw my father publicly humiliated. Have you ever had that scene when you're, you know, when you're with your dad and your mother, and you're going to a restaurant, and it's like birthday time? How many of you have ever taken to a restaurant on your birthday? How many kids here in this crowd are here because of their birthday? <laughs> uh, really, seriously, you'd be surprised how many guys are here that put their hand up. One guy was 48 last week, put his hand up. <laughs> his wife brought him. His birthday, you know. Well, I am one of those things. My father and my mother, we went to restaurants about, oh, I'd say not more than six or seven times a decade. You know, are you aware that in places like Chicago, going to a restaurant is a very rare thing? Here in New York, restaurants are just like phone booths, you know? People live in restaurants. My mother always had an idea. My father's life was one long whoopee song because he used to go out to lunch to a restaurant. A guy named Gus the Greek 
ran this joint where he served this lye water for acid, you know, for coffee. My father used to go down and pay 36 cents for what they call a, a, hot, a hot roast beef sandwich. And my mother envied him for that, eating in a restaurant. And so whenever there was a big moment in our family, my mother would say, like it's a birthday or it's a graduation, we're going to take you to a restaurant tonight for dinner. And we used to go to these places that were the equivalent of Bickford's. Yeah, you know, we, we all stand in line. I never, I thought in restaurants, up until the time I was about 14, I thought restaurants were places you walk with a tray, you know? <laughs> yeah, really. And, you know, and the guy would say, what do you want, kid? Come on, move along there. That was my idea of a restaurant. It was very exciting. And then one night, my father and my mother decided to go all out. We had this page in the paper. You know how you've got here in the New York Times, Q and all that? A page of great restaurants, and you hear about them, like the Four Seasons. You hear about places like uh, the Twelve Caesars. You know, the Four Fatheads. <laughs> you know, the Sixteen Sycophants. All these great restaurants are all listed there. And are you aware that many people never even think in terms of going to them? They're just places that they point out once in a while from the bus. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's, that's the Four Seasons, and everybody looks. You know that they take tourists outside of the Twelve Caesars now? They come in from Cleveland. They just look at the doorman. <laughs> and the guy's got a megaphone. He says, that is the, 12, the Forum of the Twelve Caesars, and next we will see Four Seasons where all the elite of New York gather to eat. Now on my right, you will see Macombo and 21. And they look, holy smokes. And then they take them for their big lunch break down to H&H. &H, <laughs> where is where their real life is, see? Well, there was this page in the Chicago Herald American. We grew up with that paper. It was a Hearst paper. And all it ever talked about was vivisection. <laughs> I mean, it never mentioned Hitler. All it was was about these people who were doing terrible things to dogs and the crossword puzzle. And it was a thing called Name the Presidents. And that was the paper we got. And there was a 17-page entertainment page. Oh, it went on and on and on. And there was this page of restaurants. And there was one restaurant in the list which was the most spectacular of them all in Chicago at that time. It was a restaurant called The Yar. Isn't that a great name? The Yar. And it had kind of ancient Gothic print. And all it said was, The Yar. Make reservations. They didn't have prices, hours. They didn't even put their location in the ad. Just The Yar. Well, one night, my old man wins the prize at bowling. He won $27. And he came home and he said, we're going to the yard. This was my mother's gigolo dream. <laughs> this was, she couldn't believe that my old man was saying it. And she says, the kids too? My father says, yes. We're all going to the yard tonight. I have made reservations. He had called up this place and said, make reservation for four at six o'clock.
that's what we ate. In the yard, they didn't start until 10. You know, we, we, were, we were in bed three hours at 10 o'clock already, you know. So he calls up, we got reservations in the yard, and we drive into town in the Oldsmobile. We're all dressed to the nines. Just dressed to the nines. Just, you know, fantastic. I've got my graduation suit on. My mother's got her flower dress on that she got the time my grandma died. My father's got his new suit, the one with the Brillo pads and the knees, you know. And we go into this place, and it was the first time my father, as far as I know, had ever seen a head waiter. And it was quiet, hushed. It was a Russian restaurant, and there were dowagers sitting along the walls. And there were heavy-set men with big beards. And there were tall, thin ladies with glasses. And there was us, all four of us. We go back and sit down. The waiter comes over. He's got this big parchment menu. He says, Good evening, sir. We are pleased to have you here with a Russian accent. Uh, this, by the way, is South Chicago Russian. <laughs> this, this, this is actually a guy who was out of work at the welding shop. And he says, We are pleased to have you here. And he hands the menu down, and it's all... Dishes like stuff like uh, borscht, kasha, derma, all kinds of strange dishes we had never even heard of in Hessville. You know, my mother's looking for meatloaf, see? <laughs> well, we struggled through that meal. We struggled. I mean, this peculiar food, little strange little pieces of brown rice, odd little gray soups and stuff, and we're all pretending we're having a hell of a time. You know, everybody's pretending he's enjoying it. Have you ever gone to a fantastic restaurant and the food tastes rotten? And you're saying, gee, this is really good. You know, they, I can see why people really come here. It's very good, especially certain seafood restaurants that serve octopus. Well, we eat our way through the restaurant meal. And it's, everybody is just loving it. My mother is loving it. And finally comes the time for the bill. And the man brings it on a little silver platter, puts it down in front of us, turned over. My father takes it casually. He says, all right, kids, come on, get your coats. Let's go. Let's go. This was the first $37 bill my old man ever saw in his life. He takes a look at it very casually. <laughs> <laughs> He takes his wallet out, you know, and he says, I better leave a tip. He puts down one dollar. Now, wait a minute. Don't laugh. This was the first time in his life he ever put a tip down that didn't clink. I mean, he thought he was doing, he thought he was going all the way out, you know. He puts a dollar so that everybody could see it. Sticks out there, see. And he takes this bill, you know, he walks up to the, up to the front, there's this Russian noble lady sitting behind this mosque-like cash register. And he gives her the, you know, and he gives the money, he gives her two $20 bills. And all of a sudden, this waiter comes up. It is our waiter. And he comes rushing up behind my father. And we're all standing there, see? Big time. We love it. There's a hat check room. My mother had never seen a real hat-check girl. 
this was something that only happened in George Raff movies. And she's looking at the hat check girl, you know, they're kind of part of showbiz and all that stuff. Here you see this big head waiter up there with a big full dress suit. And our waiter comes up and says, excuse me, sir, uh, you have forgotten something. And my mom says, what? what do you mean, my hat? What? I got my hat. He says, here, you have forgotten this. And gives him the dollar. My father says, oh, well, that's for you. Oh, go ahead, keep it. That's for you. And the man says, oh, wait, wait, wait just a minute. Wait. I hope you have enjoyed yourself, and I, well, I think you need it more than I. And suddenly my father realized he's been put on. And instantly, he is three and a half feet tall. It was the first time I towered over my dad. He's this little guy. My mother's standing there. And there's two ladies standing here looking at us. And the kids, we all go walking out. And the head waiter says, we have been pleased to have you. And now we're out on the street. Out on the street. The sun is still shining. The birds are singing. You can smell the stockyard. The White Sox have lost another doubleheader. And my father learned something about life which he never forgot. And so did I. From that day on, I learned never tip less than 170% in a bill. <laughs> who, are, who, are, who in this crowd always feel that you never tip enough? And how many of you always feel the guy at the next table is the guy who really knows how to tip? He's the guy. Well, to all of those lost and forgotten sorts... <laughs> And so let's give Bickford's a big hand before we leave. This is WOR Radio, your station for news. Palisades has the rides, Palisades has the fun. Come on over. Shows and dancing are free, shows the parking so gee. Come on over. From coast to coast, where a dime buys the most Palisades Amusement Park swings all day and after dark Ride the coaster, get cool in the waves and